Welcome to an original series, the podcast celebrating our favorite TV shows behind the paywall. I'm Patch, one of your co-hosts, and with me, celebrating the world of long-form storytelling and hopefully not getting stuck in a tunnel of gross tentacles is my friend and co-host, Adam. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm free. I'm fine. Good. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't want to have to bring some fire and a knife to you to get free of those of those things. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling good. I'm ready. Awesome. So. Awesome. <laughs> We're in season two, chapter five of Stranger Things, entitled Dig Dug. And the first big surprise is that we only get one instance of the actual game, which shouldn't surprise me, considering the things we've seen in the show so far. I was sort of sad, but not terribly surprised that all we got was just an out of order or a supposed to be out of order game that uh, Mad Max did not get a chance to play, even after she dropped her quarter in, by the way. So she lost I, a quarter I saw that, yeah. without having get a chance to play. So somebody's getting a free game out of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's interesting how some of these titles are very specific. Like they really connect you to the events of the episode. But this is a little bit out there. Like it, it's a very, very minor element of the episode that they decided to title the episode after. So it's, it's always interesting to see how, where they're deriving the titles from. Well, I mean, we, I, I picked up where they were. I think that's a, it's a kind of a multi-purpose, but primarily it's the crux of the episode with uh, Hopper and Joyce and company, which we'll get into here yep. in the next little bit. First up, uh, just to give my initial thoughts, this was a packed episode, man. This yeah. Last uh, last episode was very emotionally driven. This was all about the action. A couple of good emotional performances for sure. But I would say the mythology of the show was really at the forefront and just pushing the questions and answers and picking up on some stories that uh, were laid down earlier. So this was definitely a mythology heavy episode for me. How about you? Yeah, and I think I mentioned it at the very end of the last episode that this is the first episode of Stranger Things ever to be directed by Andrew Stanton, who is most famous for directing a lot of Pixar films, such as A Bug's Life, Finding Nemo, WALL-E. He also directed John Carter, which was sort of a, a bit of a flop at the time, but has since picked up a cult following, if you will. Uh, and yeah. he also wrote, or co-wrote, I should say, all the Toy Story, all four Toy Story films and Monsters, Inc. So he's got a lot of credits, almost all animation. I think John Carter is the only live-action directing gig that I'm aware of, at least in that list that I just mentioned. So this is uh, uh, an interesting choice for a director for mm -hmm. an episode. I think he did a great job, though. I think it's, a, like you said, very action-heavy, a lot going on. It feels very tight. It doesn't feel like there's any filler or anything that's not necessary. We're getting a lot of some mysteries are starting to get answers, and we're getting new mysteries or new questions, as you said, uh, which is always great. I felt it was a really solid episode, obviously an episode that you couldn't watch independently of what comes before and after, like some TV shows where you can just sort of pick up almost any episode of Star Trek and just watch it, right, and just enjoy it for what it is. This clearly needs everything that has happened before it, and I'm sure after for it to be uh, fully enjoyed, but I think it did the job. I agree. It was um, top-notch from top to bottom. 
I think more than anything, I look at this episode and the director and it got me wondering, I haven't looked to see, but apart from Sean Levy, the Duffer brothers have pretty much recorded, recorded, directed <laughs> every episode of Stranger yeah. Things up to this point. This is the first time that a director not named the Duffer brothers or Sean Levy has actually taken the helm. Is that correct? I think that's right. Yeah, I believe okay. you're right. So that's a that's a challenge, I know, for it would be a challenge for a TV show. And I just wonder in the storytelling and the TV movie community, if there are creators out there who just know people's style or they're friends with folks and they're like, hey, you want to take a shot at this? I remember watching an episode of Alias that was directed by Quentin Tarantino. I remember and that. I was like, yeah. that's. But that was before I knew Quentin's style and everything that kind of he brings to the table in terms of his movies. And so it made me want to go back and watch that episode to find out, is this consistent with the episodes previous and after it? Does he add his own style to it? I think he actually includes himself in the show, which is appropriately arrogant for QT. But I, <laughs> I, I just wonder sometimes, because I'm not in that world, what it's like to be asked to direct an episode. How much creative freedom do you have? Because again, we talked about on our last episode that you can't just put all the kudos on the director. Yes, it's their baby. And oftentimes if it's written and directed by the same person, that's more valuable or more perceptively valuable. But we know Sean Levy has done other things too. He's a producer and he's a writer and he's a director. So when I watch this episode, to me, it felt very consistent. And that's a big set of shoes to fill because you have a lot of stuff from the previous episode that you're sort of paying off and pushing forward. So particularly in a series where I think it would be easier in an anthology series like Twilight Zone or Black Mirror, you can have a director like Dan Trachtenberg come in and direct an episode for Black Mirror like he did. It feels consistent tonally with Black Mirror, but it can be its own story. Right Here, you got to be like, here's what you're having to play with. What are you going to push forward? I think a lot of that has to do with the Duffer Brothers. They have a game plan. They have yep. an outline. They have storyboards. And so in the case of the director, he's got a lot to do, but I think a lot of the, the mapping is laid out for him ahead of time. Yeah, I think from a uh, sort of stylistic standpoint, the show, the Duffers and Sean Levy have established over the course of about a season and a half now, the, the visual look, the color palette, the casting is all done. You know, all, so many choices that a director would normally be involved with have already been decided upon. So really what they're coming in and doing is adhering to that sort of stylistic approach, but focusing on the actual directing of the actors in this case, which I think you can tell when an episode is directed by Sean Levy. It's, as you've mentioned many times, it's very character-heavy, character-centric, lots of emotional scenes between performers. And I think that's when those more seasoned directors can shine because they can really bring out something from those actors that maybe a less experienced director might not be able to do. So it is interesting to see in TV in particular when a big name director comes in because they don't have as much leeway to kind of put their auteur stamp on something. But right. you still can see quality in the direction, if you will, in the performing of the stars. And I definitely think that is the case in this episode. Yeah, I would agree. Solid episode, directed well, written well. And uh, let's get into it so we can tell you why. <laughs> yeah. Right? So we start out in the buyer house and we see that Joyce has upgraded from decorating the whole house with Christmas lights to now decorating the whole house with Will's drawings, which on paper, literally and figuratively, would make sense. You want to put pictures of your child's drawings, but obviously this is more of the eccentric side. And so 
I'm hoping that next season we'll see it decorated with something else, you know, and that this is just a running <laughs> gag for me. So if I can make a guess as to what it's going to be next, I'll let you know at the end of the season. If there's okay. Be something, I would like but... to know what your, yeah. <laughs> where your uh, imagination takes you. <laughs> oh, man. But this is a, I love what happens here. We'll get into that. Yeah. Then we see Will and Mike, they're together. Will is um, talking to Mike about the Shadow Monster. Again, this this relationship is so cool. Just watching how Mike is so supportive of Will and what's going on here. In the same way that Joyce wants to fight for Will, that same sentiment exists, but it's slightly tweaked with Mike because I think he wants to fight with Will. Where Joyce in the last episode said, I'm going to protect you. We have Mike basically saying, we won't let him. So Will says, what if he spies back on us? Because he calls Will this uh, super spy because he's got the shadow monster inside of him, which is a really cool thing to think about. Yeah. Hey, you're seeing him. You're seeing all of his memories. So you could spy on him. But I like the fact that Mike at the end of that scene says, we're not going to let him. We, not me, not you, but we. And it's that community that we got so much great setup for in the first season that is just carrying over, even if it's just a pair of folks in this particular scene. Yeah, and it's what I find interesting is it kind of reminds me of the first season in the way that Elle could, when they were showing her flashbacks, how she could transport herself into you know Russia and spy on you know somebody in, on the other side of the world, and the idea that she's spying on him, but what if he could also see or hear her, kind of like we end up finding out the Demogorgon could do. So. It seems like maybe Will is almost experiencing something similar to what L could do, but L had control of it, and Will doesn't, clearly. He's yeah. like a captive of this quote-unquote he that he keeps referring to, which I think is great because, again, it's great foreshadowing for what's to come, and I, that's all I'll say. But I like that they, okay. <laughs> that they say it could be it, it could be she, it could be whatever, right? But that he keeps saying he as if, as if there's a, a male figure or a male being that's doing this like clearly a shadow monster or whatever we want to call it tentacle monster smoke monster it doesn't look to be male or female or whatever but they're putting that in there for a reason and, and again watching it for the first time you just kind of okay yeah he's just calling it a he but now now that i've i uh, know where things eventually go I, I like seeing that they that they knew and i mentioned this last time as well i like the fact that there was a clear understanding of what was happening here and again, I don't know if that was the case with season one, because they never knew that it was going to go beyond one season. They made season one hoping, of course, but until it, it dropped on Netflix and became the big success, they never knew. But once season two went into production, they pretty much knew that they could do whatever they wanted <laughs> or as many seasons as they wanted. And clearly they mapped out the whole rest of the of the series at that point. And uh, I like it. Adam dropping the nuggets like yeah. dog poop for me right now yeah i'm trying not to like i'm trying not to <laughs> give anything away but also just just share that there's more going on that meets the eye okay i'm gonna continue to take your word for it yeah we'll come back to this yeah okay but i also want to hear what you think i also like to know kind of yeah. where does this take your imagination where do you go when you hear him say he what does that what does that mean to you well, I mean, it, it, it's very nonchalant. It's what you said. And when I think about the natural tendency when you don't know what something is, is for me, I can't speak for the world, for me is to call it a he. Case in point, we have two dogs, both girls. And up until, I don't know what triggered this, but up until like last year, I would look at my 
older dog who is a beautiful collie shepherd mix that we call savvy and she is she's very savvy and very sweet i didn't really look at her as anything more than a androgynous but i would think he because dogs are he's you know dogs are boys yeah just an animal yeah (laughs) an animal and i think an animal you would just default to a he but it wasn't until like last year when i would look at her i'm like oh yeah she's sweet yeah she's a very she's a lady and and i think that there's nothing about her that's changed that makes her have like female like parts or female um, <laughs> right just a look or but i think you just kind of get used to calling someone or something like like a dog a she and then eventually she sort of adapts to that our other right. dog hope who is a a pit healer she's still androgynous to me but i still call her her because she's got lady parts and not you know <laughs> male parts but right, but i think right. you're right yeah going through this I don't think about the fact that they call it a he. I think that psychologically, when you provide, in this case, gender or a pronoun like that to something, it gives it properties that you can relate to. So when we think back right. to season one, I referred to the Demogorgon as a Slender Man because I didn't see right. what it looked like. But then when I saw the Demogorgon, there was nothing about it that said it's a he, it's an it. It's a monster that doesn't have any defining parts, whether they're, <laughs> they're biological parts or otherwise. But even looking at Dart, as we'll get into later, yeah. I don't see it as anything as a he necessarily because it looks like a dog. If I'm going to default to anything, it's going to be a he. So it's interesting that that's a little nugget that's going to have some importance later. So I'm excited and frustrated at the same time when you say things like that. Yeah, so yeah. I'm happy and sad for our conversation. <laughs> yeah, you're experiencing it the way I did on my initial viewing and the way I think you're intended to, which is just that he being Will is just trying to verbalize, communicate what's happening to him, what he's experiencing, what he's feeling. And he has to give it a pronoun, right? And so he gives it the he and calls it he. It's fun because knowing where it goes, it's interesting. That's all I'll say. Mm-hmm. Moving okay. on. <laughs> Leave it no more that. spoilers. <laughs> no more spoilers. We're going to the tunnels now with Hopper. Where yeah. we find him, we see him get sprayed by the walls <laughs> with yeah. some stuff. I don't know what that is, but apparently it gets in his eyes and he starts freaking out. Appropriately enough, <laughs> I saw it as both a defense mechanism and probably a strategic maneuver because as he's walking around looking for where he fell in, the moment leading up to the credits is all of those vines, we'll call them vines because I don't know what they're, tentacles, yeah. <laughs> close up and then we get him trapped inside the tunnel o doom or tunnels o doom, <laughs> which is not the place you want to be. <laughs> No, no. And I think we can safely say that these tentacles and whatever this is all on the walls that sprays him, it seems to either be triggered by light or maybe by like almost like movement, like a motion sensor, mm-hmm. like it's detecting his presence and therefore yeah. and trying to in- incapacitate him perhaps and yeah. blind him. Yeah. We're not really sure. But as you said, you don't want to be there. <laughs> he does not want to no. be there. And he's he being that tough guy that he is, is definitely starting to... Uh, to freak out at, the, at yeah. this point. You know, he's feeling pretty trapped. <laughs> Literally. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, what's happening to me? I did not want to be him in that moment or really throughout the rest of the episode. No, he. this is not a good episode to be Hopper. No. I would agree. So after the credits, we get we pick up where Jonathan and Nancy were taken off to. They're going to a hotel or a motel. A hotel is actually better. Well, it, it's called, here's something funny. It's called the Motor Motel, which is weird. Because okay. I'm sure you know, the term motel was coined like after World War II when cars started and motorcycles started to become prevalent everywhere. And it 
was a merging of two words. Motel meant motor and hotel. It was combining motor and hotel to be motel. So calling it motor motel is redundant. It's motor motor yeah. hotel. It's like calling <laughs> an ATM machine an ATM machine and not just an ATM because the M means machine. So it's AT- <laughs> yeah. it's the automatic teller machine machine. It's just it's funny. I don't know if that was a joke if they didn't think about that <laughs> as the, Lazy as the uh, production designer. I don't know, but it's I caught that and it struck me as funny. The cinematographer was like, we need a name for this. And some guy's like, yeah. what about the Motor Motel? It's like, <laughs> okay. It's like yeah. two in the morning. Throw it in there. <laughs> All right, we're good. Yeah. <laughs> I love the awkwardness of them with the receptionist. She's not even paying attention. And she's like, no. you need a room? And they're like, yeah. <laughs> she says, single, single or double. double. <laughs> <laughs> like, double. Then they are settling in. We still don't know where they are, where they're going. We just know they've left no. uh, Hawkins. But this scene really kind of caught us up on maybe the questions that we had, like, okay, what happened with their relationship? Because by the end of season one, they're not together. Jonathan right. gets a camera out of the deal and Nancy gets to <laughs> hang out and kiss Steve. So I guess everybody was happy, but apparently not. And it seemed to be Nancy. So after showing their scars to each other from the epic fight with the Demogorgon, she asks him, why, why did you not try anything? Or why did you not pursue? And he said, rightly so. Will needed me. And this killed me, Adam. She says, I waited. Oh, like only a month. Dude, <laughs> you t- <laughs> Wow. And like the ice just, yeah. just filled up that room of like, wow. <laughs> and the way she just rolls over and says, I want them all. <laughs> like, dude. It, from a timeline standpoint, it makes perfect sense from what we saw because most of that first season took place up until about, you know, around Thanksgiving, right? And then we get that final scene at the end of the last episode on Christmas. So it's clearly about four weeks later. And that's when we see Steve and, and Nancy together on the couch and the gift of the camera. So yeah, it was a month, but maybe that wasn't the best thing to say. <laughs> no. Jonathan just not sensitive to a woman's needs there in that in that moment. I want to point out that there were a couple of great scene transitions in this episode. This one in particular, the camera pans down or it moves down into the blackness between the beds. Yeah, between the beds, and then all of a sudden we get a jump script, jump square. All of a sudden we get a jump scare, and Will jumps out of bed and he tells his mom that Hopper he, he knows where Hopper is and that he thinks he's going to die. And that just kind of sets the episode in motion into a higher, like a higher rhythm here. Like we're in high speed mode now. Yeah, the stakes suddenly got much higher. And so then we jump to the the tunnels. Hopper wakes up, throws up, and gets up in that order. And so he starts looking for a way out. And the whole time I'm thinking, dude, stop flashing your light. Now I get it. I absolutely get it. You're panicked. Even if you're Hopper, you're panicking. But I'm just waiting for him to flash his light at random spots on the wall and then just get spit on, like from all different angles. And I know that he has to have some kind of light because he can't see, but it started giving me panic attacks. Like, just I'm just starting to get really, really anxious for him. And then he makes a face covering and totally looks like a bandit. I love that. Yeah, it kind of reminded me of Back to the Future Part 3 when they, uh, yes, they robbed yeah. the train, you know. They, <laughs> I, I, you know, Back to the Future, one of my favorite movies, so I will always try to find a way to bring Back to the Future into our conversations, if I can. Yes, please do. <laughs> I welcome them all. 
And so the uh, the scene finishes out with him putting like pieces of cigarettes down as breadcrumbs, probably for yeah. his own benefit. I don't think he's anticipating anybody coming to rescue him, but I think he's got these two tunnels that he has to pick from, and he chooses the one less slithered by, I guess, with the with the uh, yeah. the vines. But they start following him, and that's how the scene ends. Is like, wow, this is going to get really, really bad for him if it's not already. It's horrible because I think as viewers, we're being given a somewhat dimly lit set for him to walk around in. But if you think about it, it would be pitch black under there. There would be no light emanating from the end of the hall, like blue light. So that's why he needs the light. He needs something because he would be in the absolute pitch black darkness underground unless there's like some kind of bioluminescence emitting from these vines. But I don't think that's the case. I was thinking the same thing, and it reminded me of other movies and TV shows that do that, where for our benefit as an audience, right. they show them in the dark, but clearly they're not. It's like when, when you watch a scene of someone in a car, they've always got their window down, no matter what the weather is, so you can hear them. And yeah. then if it's at night and you have this conversation of two people in the car with the shot from the front, it's always lit from the bottom. And I'm like, that never happens. Yeah, there's always this light coming up Yeah, from like down where their feet are somehow (laughs) lighting their beautifully lighting their faces and there's never any wind from the like if the windows are down or if it's a convertible no you can hear just fine just fine (laughs) just fine right up there with the tape recorder you know just movie magic (laughs) we'll do a secondary podcast on really bad movie magic (laughs) and start with an episode on tape recorders that you keep in your jacket (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's called suspension of disbelief, I guess. But yes, it is. <laughs> yeah. I'll just uh, add that Hopper loses his, his, I guess it's a fedora, his hat, you know, it's... Sheriff's hat, yep. Yeah, he, he reminds me sometimes of a kind of slightly overweight and less handsome Indiana Jones. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, he's got that gruff guy attitude that Indy has and... You know, he's just, he's not really afraid of much. Just kind of goes in head Nonchalant. First. Yeah. yeah nonchalant, nonchalant. Very direct <laughs> with what he thinks and says. And yeah. And he's got that hat, which there's something there. Yeah. I would imagine that that's a little inspiration from the Duffers. And uh, yeah, I'm glad we have it. Hopper's become a, a fan favorite. At least these two fans, we like him. So keep doing what <laughs> yeah. you're doing, Hopper, with or without your hat in this, uh, in this episode. And uh, the episode moves along. We are now in Lucas's house, which I don't think we've been in Lucas's house before. This is a first. Yeah, I don't think so. At least the first time we're seeing the whole family, I would say. Like, yeah. At yeah. the breakfast table together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think earlier an earlier episode, we saw Lucas's mom and his sister, mm-hmm. Erica, being right. the typical little sister. And uh, uh, she shines in this episode as well with a little bit of that. Opens yeah. on her dousing her french toast with mrs butterworth which apparently is the syrup of choice in hawkins indiana so l uses it hopper uses it and now erica uses it so mrs butterworth getting some getting some love there i would say growing up around this time everyone i knew had mrs butter mrs butterworth i can't even speak give mrs butterworth (laughs) that's it Um. (laughs) mrs butterworth mrs Butter, Butterworth. Uh, Mrs. Margarine's worth. <laughs> but, uh, Butterworth's. <laughs> Mrs. Buttersworth. It was the most popular brand, I think, at that time in the U.S., I would argue. It seemed to be in every house. You know, any friend's house I went to, you would see, because it, it was hard to miss. You know, you saw that bottle. It was very iconic. Yeah. And it was just, yeah, it was everywhere. So I think they probably did a little research to see, you know, to see oh, what, what were people 
consuming? What was the most popular brand at the time? Makes yeah. sense to me. I think I was an Aunt Jemima guy. Did, if, oh, if, yeah. If, okay. that, if that brand had syrup, I think I got that one. At least the pancakes. I, I used that for sure in Bisquick. Yeah. Those were the pancake mixes I feel for like me. Aunt Jemima became, again, this is just me making this up. It became bigger where I live in the 90s. I think. Mm, okay. I, I don't know. I, I just, for some reason, I remember seeing Aunt Jemima more. Yeah. So this might have just been a flash in the pan or very popular <laughs> at the time, 1984 in Hawkins, Indiana, as you said. Yeah. No, I, I'm with you. I, I clearly remember that iconic bottle. I mean, who wouldn't want syrup coming out of some lady's head? It, that's just kind of a cool <laughs> thing. And I think yeah. that's probably why Erica's doing it. I think she likes that whole effect of like, <laughs> look at this liquid coming out of your it's head. It's just fun to squirt it out. Yeah. Dude. And, well, I don't yeah, think she was squirting. I think it's a, it's a glass bottle, so I think she's just pouring it. Yeah, it's but, pouring. Yeah. But clearly the syrup to French toast, the syrup to toast ratio was way, way too much. I mean, she had, she was continuing to pour it, I think, even through the conversation. And at some point, it just becomes a syrup bath. I mean, you just, you lose the pancake, you lose the French toast. And so I'm kind of on the side of Erica's mom. Stop. Yeah. Less is more, lady. Come on. Yeah, Throw some butter on there. That's the just French toast anymore. Yeah. Oh, well. Yeah. I, I, I think we need to pause this podcast and have some French toast now. That- I'm really hungry. <laughs> And we'll be back right after these messages from our sponsor, Mrs. Butterworth's. Mrs. Butterworth? Yes? How come you taste so good? Well, my syrup is very thick and rich. Thick and rich? Just watch. See how the leading syrup just runs over this stack? While Mrs. Butterworth takes her own sweet time. Now, my syrup's got to be thick to pour this slowly. Truth is, Mrs. Butterworth's is twice as thick as the other syrup. Thick and rich and... Mm, Mrs. Butterworth, I love you. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, Lucas, uh, he is asking his dad. Uh, clearly, he's still kind of shaken by Max's conversation with him. And uh, he makes his, asks his dad how he, quote, makes mom not mad when she's mad at you. And the whole thing here is so great. When mom's mad at you, how do you make her not mad? Hmm, that's a great question. How do you, hon? First, I apologize. Then, I get your mother whatever she wants. Even when she's wrong? She's never wrong, son. Now, that's funny, but this is the exclamation point for me, and Mom goes, That's right. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like this cliche, like when when people get married, like they'll get advice from, you know, some crazy uncle, like, one thing you got to remember. She's always right, you know. <laughs> it's just yeah, that kind yeah. of uh, advice. And I, you know, I look at these parents; they seem less goofy and less kind of out of it than yeah. Will's parents, clearly. But yeah, I thought that was a great exchange. I also love the fact that this scene kind of begins and ends with this little gag on the syrup, where Erica's mom tells her to stop, and then Lucas leaves to go to Dustin's house. Air quotes, and then the scene ends with uh, her looking at Erica and she's like, "Sorry." You're not sorry, Erica. You've just wasted half the bottle on French toast that you'll only get like a quarter of it in your mouth. So, you mentioned going to Dustin's house. You know, no one really goes where they say they're going in this show. Have you noticed that? Like, everyone is basically lying. <laughs> yep. Friends don't lie, but apparently sons and daughters do. Yeah, to the parents. They all lie to the parents or <laughs> yeah, <exactly>. siblings. <laughs> well, they're not your friends. That's a, that's a yeah, thing. That's... Your mom and dad, they're not your friends. So you can lie to them. <laughs> yeah. This is another cool scene transition because clearly he's not going to see Dustin. 
but he drives by Dustin's house or rides by Dustin's house on his bike. And we're left with Dustin's mom looking for Muse, the cat that is dead, that we know. I got to tell you, this is something funny. When I watch these episodes at night, if I don't have my headphones in, I'm looking at the subtitles. I did not catch the first time, Adam, that Dustin was talking to no one on the phone. Dusty, baby, you sure she's not in your room? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Thank you so much, Mr. McCorkle. Thank you so much. You are a true lifesaver. All right, this is great. Thank you. All right. Have a good one. Bye-bye now. All right. You too. Like when oh, I listened yeah. to it, the second time I was like, oh, the way he sells this, I was convinced that he was talking to someone, even though I knew that he wasn't really like, who was he talking to? I didn't really even try to fathom that because he was trying to get his mom out of the house, but he was so clever to be on the phone. Like he's talking to Mr. Corkle to get his mom out of the house. He fooled me. Good job, Dustin. And I even love the fact that he's like, yeah, okay. Yeah. I'll talk to you soon. Great. Yeah. Like he's like the guy's trying to hang out on the phone. And like yeah. You could have easily just hung up, but you sold it, man. That's Oscar worthy. It was, and he's clearly doing a better job taking care of his mom than his mom is taking care of him here. He's, yes. He's on, you know, obviously, there's no father figure in this household that we're aware of. We're not, I don't think, told why or what happened, but it's just the two of them. They need each other, clearly, but Dustin definitely is sort of wise beyond his years, I would say, and, and able to, to help his mother in ways that she needs support and love because she doesn't know anything about demogorgons and upside down and all that so yeah it was a really in a way it was like a funny but also a sweet scene because he was doing this all for his mother's well-being if you will because he doesn't want her to find out that the cat was eaten you know that's pretty traumatic especially yeah. when it's just the two of them well and as we find out at the end of that scene, clearly Dustin has changed his mind about Dart, or at least I perceive that. So he sets her out to go look for Muse at Loch Nora, and she asks a very logical question, how did the poor baby get all the way out there? But she's not thinking, clearly, and so he's able to take advantage of, of that. Do you remember where Loch Nora was from a previous episode? That's where they found Will's fake body, right? Or is that no, where is that where Mike jumped off the was going to jump off the cliff and I don't remember. I'm, I'm, no, no, it's it, Loch Nora is the is the rich side of town where they go trick or treating. Remember Max? Oh, like, for the full size Loch Nora, isn't that where you go for the you know the rich people have a full size candy it. bars? Yeah. Okay, so maybe it's so, not too far away. I don't know. I mean, I think it's far enough. I think that was his intention was to get her, like you said, out of the house far enough away that she would be out of the house for hours and give him time to enact his his plan, right? His trap that he wants to set for this much larger dart. Yeah. It's now an arrow, not a dart. <laughs> yeah. <I> can say. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for keeping me in line. This is why I need you on the show so you can help me down this journey by keeping things accurate because clearly I'm thinking about the quarry and not <laughs> the rich well, part of town. the word lock, in all fairness, like lock nest, it's you would think yeah, it might I'm thinking be some lake. body of water. Thinking, yeah. 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 But yeah, this was the name of like, I guess, a sort of suburban development of wealthier Hawkins Indian Indian Indians. How do you say what would you say? Indianians? Indianians? Indians? I think it's Indians. <laughs> Indians. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> that doesn't sound right either. Yeah. We'll we'll call them just the Hawkins people. <laughs> the people of Hawkins. Like you would call people in my state. New Yorkers, what would you call them in 
Arkansas. Arkansans. That's what we are. Arkansans. Arkansans. Yeah, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's some, there's a yeah. Yeah, people mistakenly call our state Arkansas. We're like, nope, no, Kansas is Kansas. We are yeah. Arkansas. Yeah. That's the what's Texarkana? It's the place where Texas and Arkansas meet. It's the town okay. that the border of Texas and Arkansas is in. And because it's in Smokey it's, and the Bandit, I think that's where I remember yeah. it from. Yeah, it's where we stop for Chick Fil A when we go visit our family in Texas. So <laughs> <laughs> that's the most important. It all it all comes back to food. Yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna get some Mrs. Butter Butterworth. See, now I can't say it because of you. Thank you. You. <laughs> you ruined my joke, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> it's funnier when you say it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> It is. It really is. This is Blubber's worth. <laughs> this is Blubber's worth. Anyway, so something something must have sprayed me in the face, paralyzing my my speech abilities. Must, must be. Get your cigarettes out, man. So I can find you later. <laughs> yeah. So he sets up a trap. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he, he sets up a trap, and uh, he's representing multiple sports with a catcher's mask and a chest protector, hockey stick, and leg pads. And then he puts on the oven mitts for good measure <laughs> and starts throwing <laughs> down bologna to get Dart out of his uh, his bedroom. And I have a legitimate question. Where did he sleep? I'm assuming that this is the next day. It has to be the next day, yeah. I mean, he came home in the last episode. He came home at the end of the day. He f- yeah. went to feed Dart in the terrarium. He lifts up the mm-hmm. sheet. He broke out. He finds him in the corner, follows the trail of blood in the corner of his bedroom. So I'm mm-hmm. guessing that was the night before. Yes. And he just left his pet Dart to finish his meal. Maybe he closed <laughs> the door and slept on the couch. <laughs> I don't know. I couldn't sleep. I could not sleep. I know. I, that, that, no. And I would not want to see Muse even after that. No. Hopefully there was nothing left of Muse. There was something because he was oh, burying it. Oh, they bury it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So he just <laughs> ate, took a bite out of his belly or something. Yeah, I don't know. I just, just Let's not look at that. Just R.I.P. Muse, whatever. So he opens the door, and I love the exchange here. We can't say it on the air, but he starts out by saying, oh, my God, 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 as he runs out the door in all his gear, followed by OS, 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 yeah. <laughs> like that just, yeah, yeah. which I would do too. I'm like, I'm freaking out. I don't know how fast this thing is. So he gets to his fort. Two jump scares here, Adam. Both got me. The first one was he's looking through the crack, which is always just a precursor to getting scared. Dart comes down, and I give Dart some credit here. The way he's able to pick up that bologna and eat it—that's that's kind of cool. Using the with the the quadrant mouth that he has. Right, right, right. He goes to the uh, the door of the uh, storm shelter where Dustin's trying to get him to go in, and he looks back real quick, and I'm like, oh my gosh, music's great there. Dustin gets back and apparently that's enough to get Dart to recognize oh there's something in this fort and so then he looks back through the crack and there's a stare down like Dart's like something's here I'm not moving and Dustin I'm I'm thinking the same thing Dustin is like okay it's now or never I've got to do something because I can't stay in here he's going to eat me and so he slap shots Dart down the storm shelter, like after he yells at them. And I love that Dart kind of reacts like a dog would. Like he's, whoa, whoa, what's going on here? And he hits him, throws him in the storm shelter. And this is where I think he's kind of made a turn. He says, I'm sorry, you ate my cat. 
And so at this point in the episode, I'm like, okay, I guess he's not going to keep him as a pet or try to justify. It was just Muse. I mean, I don't know how close he was to the cat, but clearly he's had a change of heart. And like, this is not a pet that I need to be keeping around. No, not at all. I think he's he's come to see the error in his ways. And I'll just add, as you mentioned, that he was eating bologna. That's because Dustin created like a trail of bologna yes. coming from outside his bedroom out the house outside which it kind of reminded me of a little bit of the uh the Reese's Pieces trail from E.T. another little nod I feel like that was not too subtle but it was there yeah it was good this thing's smart I mean the mm-hmm. fact that he didn't fall for that trick first of all that's the interesting thing is that Dart could have if he was a dumb animal followed those bologna slices all the way down into the storm cellar but he didn't he he figured out something's wrong I think or he detected Dustin in the fort and as you said stared him down and yeah. knew something was up. I think it's the latter. And there's a part of me that thinks he's built a sort of bond with Dustin. So the optimist in me, the small optimist in me at this point, feels like Dart wouldn't eat Dustin because of this motherly connection that he has, you know, taking care okay. of him, giving him nougat. Right. Maybe he imprinted. Imprinted. That's a good, yeah, yeah, that's the word I was thinking of that I still you know, could not think of. So thank you for that. <laughs> and that could be true. Now, a slap shot to the face and being locked in a storm shelter may change that relationship, but we never know, or we will know at some point, <laughs> I'm pretty sure. But yeah, that, that kind of closes out the door on that literally and figuratively. Yeah, that's about all yeah. we get with Dart this episode. Yeah. But the episode picks up the storyline with Eleven after she has sort of tried to connect with, I'm going to say Mama at this point. I feel like yeah. this is the confirmation. We we kind of speculated about that last season, that are we to assume that Jane is the daughter and this is her mom? I'm going to go ahead and just at this point say, yeah, okay. So she's trying to find her mom. And so she actually hitches a ride with, I guess, a, a, a truck driver hitchhikes. Yeah, yeah, a trucker, yeah. Watching this exchange, it's really kind of sweet. The truck driver, he says, um, Hey, you apologize to your mama, yeah? Huh? Must be scared after death. How long has it been? Long time. And it's it's kind of this play on words because he doesn't know, obviously, the history of this. He thinks she's just run away or something's happened. I also like the double meaning of the whole 515 versus 515. Like she's, yeah. she's living at 515. That's how you pronounce an address or maybe you pronounce it 515. But we kind of harken back to 515 being the time that Hopper is right. supposed to be home. She kind of corrects him in a way. Like she thinks mm-hmm. she's correcting him. Like he's saying it the wrong way, not the way Hopper yeah. taught her. So she thinks she's saying it the right way, which is, mm-hmm. yeah. It's kind of sweet in a way. It is. It's a, it's a nice scene and it's a great way to get us to Becky's house. Like if I saw her at Becky's door, I'd be like, how did she get there? That That's kind of right. crazy. But she clearly got the information from the paperwork, from the Hawkins box. And she goes to Becky's house and she tries to get her to answer the door. She doesn't. There's this great exchange about Girl Scout cookies and preaching and all this stuff. And then Elle's confused. She doesn't know what that's about. But then she opens the door with her mind because that's what Elle does the scene ends with such a great line. She goes, I want to see mama. You got to let her in. I would let her in as much as I would. If I didn't know her, I would let her in because that just would scare the crap out of me. Oh, without a doubt. And we do get a a brief introduction. She kind of brings her in. 
we just get another shot of Mama in her chair saying these kind of random words and numbers like rainbow, three to the right, four to the left, breathe, sunflower, 450, like it just repeating over and over. And I think these were the exact same words she was repeating over and over when L kind of telepathically communicated with her in the previous episode. So that's all we get at this point in the episode, but it's yeah. it's a it's a great sort of introduction to this new, hopefully new relationship that she'll mm-hmm. have. Yeah, lots of stuff going on. Lots of stuff going yeah. on in this episode. We connect back with Jonathan and Nancy. We finally realize where they're going. They're going to Murray's house, who we met in one of the first couple of episodes, the conspiracy theorist who apparently is extorting money from Barb's parents. And uh, first of all, he's got a killer van. I really like, I think it's an Astro van maybe, but it's it's really cool. I like that van. Very, very retro, but not for that time. I guess it's fairly new for that time. But what? And his whole place is kind of like an amazing kind of conspiratorial man cave. I don't know yeah. <laughs> what you would call it. He has like a metal mesh door, which makes me think mm-hmm. he's, this whole place is probably set up as like a makeshift Faraday cage so that no yeah. signals can get in. Like he's that paranoid. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And he has the coolest wall of televisions as well. I don't know if you saw that array of various Mm -hmm. CRT tubes that he has. I think I counted 16. I don't know if those are all set up, you know, to work or if it's just like decorative. (laughs) 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 Or if like that's one for 16, each has its own channel. You know, if may have some kind of switcher that allows him to turn on 16 channels at once. I wouldn't put it past him. It seems like something he would do so he could watch like 16 different news stations at the same same time to be yeah informed this is the first iteration of what we get in back to the future too the play out of i want channels 18 24 16 5 <laughs> right <laughs> and, exactly and the letter channel <laughs> this is the first instance of that <laughs> how many back to the future references can we get in this episode we'll find out after this <laughs> there's at least one more <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah. One of the things I love about Murray is that he acts conspiratorial. Like we sort of yeah. saw that early on, but when they ring the doorbell, he's like, "Look at the camera." The camera. Not the loudspeaker above you to the right. And then he opens the door lets them in, and rather than just closing the door, he steps out, looks left and right, and then goes back in. Like, it's this is all full-on, like, I know something's going on. Nothing's as it seems. And at this point, Adam, he has become Keith to me. Like, this really funny <laughs> kind of ha-ha-ha. Yeah. But I was surprised, as we get later on to the episode, at kind of some respect that I've got for this guy. I can't wait to, to get into that. But, but yeah, at yeah. this point, I'm like, <laughs> this dude's going to be a lot of fun. I can tell. Yeah, totally. <laughs> And I'll just add that we did learn earlier in the season that he is a a respected investigative journalist. Like he actually knows how to sort of solve a mystery or investigate a crime. He knows what he's doing. He's a smart guy, but he just also has some, I don't know, just quirks about him. (laughs) He's a little, little out there at the same time. Yeah. So he shows him the conspiracy room. And Nancy says some really interesting things. She says, your timeline's wrong. And the girl with the buzzed hair, she's not Russian. She's from Hawkins Lab. So this is kind of new information for him. And then Jonathan starts telling him everything. Now, knowing that they have a tape recorder, what they're about to do, my assumption at this point is that they're trying to get him the truth so that he'll really back off of Barb's parents, but more so that 
if he's going to investigate, that's one side effect. The other side effect is that they're going to expose the people for who they are. And obviously the latter is what we start getting more into. But I think one of the byproducts is that Barb's parents, they can take the, the house off the market. Right. I mean, I do think he's trying to solve the mystery for Barb's parents. I don't think he's taking their money and not delivering. I think he's legitimately yeah. trying, like almost obsessively trying to solve the mystery of her disappearance, but they clearly don't have the money to pay whatever he's charging. And that's why they're you know, about to sell their house. But what I do think, though, most likely is that because Nancy and Jonathan are not, they attempted, as we learned in the last episode, they attempted to tell Barb's parents the truth, but were unable to do so because they know they're being tracked, followed by Hawkins' lab, right, or whomever is behind it. So I think maybe what they're hoping is that if they give the information to Murray, that Murray can be the one to get it out, not just to the public at large, but also specifically to his client, Barb's parents, yeah. so that they'll be able to get the truth to them. So they'll know that Barb is in fact gone, but right. they won't get killed <laughs> in doing so. You know, if Murray does exactly. it, then they're okay. Yeah. So that's kind of what I think they're trying to do here. Yeah, I mean, all that all that makes sense up to this point, and even when we get through the episode, that feels like it's kind of a multi-purpose giving of information. Like, it has right. a lot of different solutions to the, the problem there. So we finish up that scene, and then we're at the arcade. Evil Troy Bolton is dropping off Max so that she can go play, I guess, an hour's worth of Dig Dug, as we find out. And she wants to play, but apparently it's out of order. And then Keith, best cast yep. member ever in this, with his <laughs> Cheetos... It says, yeah. sorry, Road Warrior, which I think is great. He recognizes that, you know, she is Mad Max. She's elite. Yep. And he leads her to the back so she can play, quote, another game. Not so much. And I was confused a little bit here. How did Lucas know that she was going to the arcade? I think what he did was, well, first of all, Lucas knows that Keith works there. He knows that Max goes there almost every day to play games. So he probably called up Keith and said, when does Max usually come to play? If you tell me and help me out, I'll get you a date with Mike's sister. You know, that's what he wants. So that's what Keith wants more than anything. So I think that's what happened. I think somehow he made an arrangement with Keith, who clearly knows all the regulars that come in there. And, and a kid at this age, she has to get dropped off by her, her stepbrother anyway. So she can't just come anytime she wants, right? She probably has an hour every day. She gets dropped off. So Keith would know. Keith helps with this this uh, ruse to get her into the back room. And I'll just say that his fingers are just covered in Cheetos dust and he's touching <laughs> yes, everything. Are. It's disgusting. Like, he's touching like so the, the games, the doorknobs. Like they're just if you look and pay attention, it's like it really is kind of gross. They need to invent. This is a million dollar idea. Cheetos gloves that you wear. They come with every bag. There's like little plastic gloves, whatever. And you, you use them just for eating your Cheetos. And then when you're done, you take them off, throw them away. See? I love it. Clean love hands. It. You heard it here first. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if Frito-Lay would like to buy that idea off me, I'm, I'm open to offers. Or we'll give it to you if you just sponsor the show and give us lifetime supplies of Cheetos. <laughs> yeah. Send me a box. I'm, I'm easy. Send me a box or a case, mm -hmm. even better. And Keith is kind of just, a, I mean, he's goofy anyway, but I love him in this scene because he, he's just like, keep things PG in here. And then he throws a wink her way. <laughs> like, that's, yeah. Oh God, that 
the way he stared at her right before he closed the door was really, <laughs> really creepy, I, th- I thought. It's it, so weird. It, it was like this weird, like, I don't know, I, it's just inappropriate look he's yeah. giving this young girl yeah <laughs> let's, let's hope he's not any worse than that because because i no. like the guy <laughs> cheeto fingers and all <laughs> i mean it's kind of the kind of the best job you'd have when you're i don't know if he's 16 17 like that's a pretty great job just hang out in an arcade all day yeah eating cheetos <laughs> <laughs> maybe he's gonna get a billy mitchell in there to break a pac-man record or something who knows it's hawkins probably not <laughs> it's not a tumwa <laughs> iowa but it's close, maybe. I don't know. Anyway, so at in that point, this is where we get Lucas kind of sharing the story to Max, and you can see how Finally. serious he is. You got to yeah. promise, yeah. You got to tell me, promise. You know, it's essentially like you're signing your life away. Can't tell anybody. And he starts telling her the story, and that leads us back to the buyer house where Will is drawing where he thinks he sees Hopper on the big giant kind of roadmap that has been elaborately covering the the buyer house. They need to find out where that is. And serendipitously, Bob is showing up. Bob the brain. I call him the hero in the members only jacket in this scene because he is, what am I, four for four, five for five. Uh, he wasn't in the last episode, so four for four. Now my numbers are going to get off. But he is such a great potential stand-in dad, just wanting to take care of Will. Brings the brain teasers over, said, this is what helped me when I was sick. Willing to stay with Joyce because he adores her. And so nothing about him at this point is you know, sending me and he kind of like, mm, you don't need to be here. But Joyce is trying to protect him. And I love that. I love the fact that she's like, yeah, let me just call you later. I appreciate what you're doing. And then she's reminded that he's a smart dude. So she invites him in to the world that is crazy. Hawkins conspiracies. <laughs> and apparently he doesn't know what's going on. You know, he, he looks at it and I initially wrote down, he looks at it so nonchalantly, like this isn't a big deal. He's like, oh, you drew all these? I'm like, dude. This doesn't look crazy to you. Did you see? You should see the lights from last season. It's just crazy. But later on, he starts questioning it. But I love the way we get the discovery through him that the lines aren't roads, but that they act like roads. And the giveaway is that they don't go over water, interestingly enough. And then it's a map of Hawkins. Brilliant. Yeah, he first notices all the various bodies of water in in Hawkins that I guess he's studied enough maps in his time in Hawkins that he just instinctively noticed the shapes that these kind of vines were forming in the drawings yeah it's it's a really fun scene because he gets to shine a little bit here his genius comes out and he's so proud of himself and of course he has really has no idea what what's really going on but you know he sees it as a puzzle you know he yeah like you said he brought the brain teasers he likes puzzles he likes solving things it's a challenge and so right clearly it wasn't a huge challenge for him it within a matter of five minutes i feel like he had the whole thing figured out <laughs> but <laughs> hey you know it's good to have bob the brain on your side that is for sure i need him for trivia night at the uh, pizza <laughs> parlor that we go to that'd be fun and then the episode moves to a couple of quick scenes. One's in the tunnels. Jim is walking around and he finds the bones and carcasses of dead animals, I'm guessing. I don't see a lot of clarity there and neither does he, even with the ambient light that isn't really there for us uh, spectators. Yeah. And he realizes in that moment that the tunnel creatures don't like heat. Now that repeats itself later on. And so he makes this torch to kind of punch through something. I'm guessing it's just something because he can't find the entrance and so he's just grasping at straws here trying to find a hole or light or something that will get him through i don't think it's a strategic place in the wall i think he's just like okay i see something behind this thing so i'm going to go ahead and start digging through which by the way ambitious and ballsy 
to do that because man, who knows what's behind that. But again, it's the uh, poor man's Indiana Jones, as you said. And so it doesn't surprise me that Hopper's doing this. And that's what I thought at first, too. I thought, you know, he's in the dark. He's stuck. He can't find his way out. He's just going for it, right? He's just going to make a hole and see if he can get himself out. But then I was thinking, well, what was the significance of those dead animals, of the bones and the carcasses? And I thought, oh, maybe like this was a tunnel, a hole that some animals were burrowing. That's how they got in. And maybe he thought, oh, maybe I can oh, get yeah. out that way. You know, I don't know. Like, yeah. There might have been some thought process he had that, oh, these, how did these animals get in here? They had to get in here from above. And maybe this hole here is, you know, maybe there's the beginning of a hole that kind of got vined over or something. I don't know. It, it's yeah. it's hard. To, I don't know if it's if it's ever explained really what he was attempting. I'm, I, I myself am just kind of guessing. Well, if I had to guess connected to the next scene, these might be buried animals of folks mm. that when these tunnels were created, they fell through. And then, of course, the creature just sort of devoured them. And that may be what he's, he's OK. I see some dead animals. This is probably where they're buried. That means there's probably some soft soil or something above me. A pet cemetery. Uh, yeah, a pet cemetery. Exactly. <laughs> That's, that has not been uh, released yet in theaters <laughs> or on Vahas <laughs> at that time. <laughs> Anyway, so then we move over to Dustin, which is where my, my connection is, and that he's burying Muse, trying mm. to clean up the mess that Dart made, all while crying Code Red. This is a Code Red on the Fantastic Four's frequency, whatever they are. And he um, can't get anybody. Well, he gets one person. He gets Erica, who I think has probably the best line in the entire episode. She's being an annoying little sister, and she's like, I got a code for you instead. It's called code. Shut your mouth. And then she turns the walkie-talkie off. Oh my gosh. If this is just for comic relief or just to show us that he's cleaning up, I think it's totally worth it, personally. Yeah, and all the while, I think she's in her brother's room because she's holding like a He-Man action figure. Yeah, looking at it weird. Like, yeah. yeah. Yeah, like... I don't know what she's doing with it. She's just like, I don't know if she's playing with it or if she's just admiring his Trespassing. His that's what she's doing. Yeah. She's trespassing. But it made me miss those, those He-Man figures. I used, to, ha I used yeah. to have so many of those. I love them. Did you have Castle Grayskull? I did. I did. Yeah. I love Castle Grayskull. It, broke, it was portable, it, man. It was so portable. It was. It was you could like, carry it around. and It was so good. Yep. <laughs> I had Battle Cat. I did too. I did too. And Man at Arms. I had Man at Arms. He was cool. Anyway, different podcast. We'll talk about that maybe on a bonus episode of what we had in our rooms that we stopped playing with at like 15 years old. Anyway. Yeah. Try 22. Okay. Well, someone's revealing something. Anyway. <laughs> All right. And so then we're at Becky's house. Becky's telling Eleven about everything that's going on with, with her mom. I love when she says she's always believed that you'd come home one day. And she shows her the nursery that is apparently kind of frozen in time at that point. And I also love that Becky wants to help Eleven. She offers to let her stay there. And Eleven's like, that's cool. I can do that. That sounds good. And then she says, I want to help you, but to really do that, I need you to talk to me, okay? Doesn't have to be now. Doesn't have to be today. But when you're ready. Okay. And I think that's that's really cool because Becky knows that it's not just about a mystery to be solved. There's closure that she needs to have, that Eleven's mom needs to have. She doesn't want this to just be a charity case. She's not like, yeah, you can you can stay here. It's cool. But no, we, we really need to work through this. But I also like that she's not pressuring her, that she understands the sensitivity of the situation. So 
you know, kudos to her. I think this is a really good moment that she shines in. You know, we, we haven't seen her since the last season when Hopper and Joyce went to visit her. But I love this, uh, this scene. It was really cool. Yeah. And for a split second, I got a little suspicious. I was like, hmm. When she goes, you know, you need to talk to me. I was like, oh, is she trying to get her to open up or reveal oh. something? But then she goes, then she goes, take your time. You know, she made it, made Elle, I think, feel like there was no urgency. And Elle says, okay. She agrees to this arrangement. If you want to stay here, you need to open up when you're ready. And I think that was a really interesting moment because I, at this point in the show, I'm suspicious of everybody. I'm like, oh, maybe they, maybe this isn't even really her sister. Maybe she's just there to, to see if Elle ever shows up again. You never know. But there's also a quick thing in the scene that's good and that you see, uh, interesting, I should say, you see Elle's mother, Mama, changing the TV channels with her mind, just like Elle does, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah and the lights that flicker, flicker in right. a sequential order. It seems like they flicker in a path that leads back to Mama. Right, like, come back to me. Yeah. Yeah, because at the end of that scene, she says she wants to talk to me after she sees the blood on her right. nose and ooh, it's like, Oh gosh, what's going to happen now? It's this is going to get good. And it does get good, but not before we get to the Wheeler house. Wait, no, not the Wheeler house. We're at the buyer's house. Sorry. So many houses right. to go to the buyer's house. And Bob is trying to figure out the map distance. I think he's just in love with this whole thing. Like, Oh, I love figuring out a mystery and brain yeah. teasers and stuff like that. <laughs> he thinks it's still a game. So when he discovers that, where this X is, that it's a certain mile you know, southeast of some lake or whatever, they take off and they're like, wait, we're actually going? Like, is, is, this, is this like, oh, it's like a scavenger hunt. I love this. And he's still somewhat clueless. Yeah. Playing yeah. along, trusting Joyce like she's asking him to. And uh, I, I guess we're going along for the ride too. Even though we know more about this, I'm kind of on Bob's, Bob's team at this point. Like, all right, well, let's, let's see what happens. And when he's doing the calculations, he has this little grin on his face. Like, he's so proud of himself, you know? I just think he's Sean Aston really does a, a great job, I think, portraying this character in a way that he could have been really goofy, but he's not. He's, like, more sincere and intellectual. And I just I really love how he's developed this character. And this is where a great actor can do that. They can make a character their own and probably do more with it than was ever written on a page. And I think Sean did that here. I think he did too. Yeah. It's, it just makes him more endearing. And I think that yeah. that's when you continue to do that and elevate that, it's a testament to you as an actor that you're not just a, a one-off. You're not just like there for filler, but you really do have purpose. And when, you know, literally when Joyce brings him in, even without allowing him to ask questions, I'm starting to say, good. I'm glad he is part of this. I'm glad he's not being, sheltered anymore because he's necessary and he's again not just there for giving a big kind of bear hug to that he really does have he has a role to play they literally would not have solved the mystery of these drawings of these vines without bob and his yeah his brain (laughs) yes bob the brain i'm glad that he has a role to play because clearly at the wheeler house uh mike's parents have no role to play this was probably (laughs) One of the more hilarious scenes and affirming in how I'm feeling about Mike's parents. It's so funny. Uh, Mom's drinking wine while she's on the phone. I guess she's just gossiping with a girlfriend. She's very, very made up. Like like she's going out or something. (laughs) I don't know what's happening there, but apparently she was on the phone for over two hours, according to Dustin, and still on the phone. This is before call waiting, I believe. Yes. So (laughs) if the phone's busy, it is busy. And... 
there's nothing you can Sorry. do but ride your bike over like Dustin did. Exactly. Which is what he does. Yeah. Rings the doorbell. And this whole exchange between Mike's dad and Dustin is just priceless. Your line has been busy for over two hours, Mr. Wheeler. Do you realize this? Well, I do realize. Is Mike home? No. No. Or where the hell is he? Karen, where's our son? Wills. Wills. <sighs> no one's picking up there. Nancy. What about Nancy? Karen, where's Nancy? Uh, Allie! Allie's. Our children don't live here anymore. You didn't know that? Seriously? Am I done here? Son of a bitch. You know, you really know help at all. You know that? Hey, language. I got this feeling that they're living in this, like, moment of bliss, Adam, where the kids aren't around and they're just like, we're, we're single. I mean, we're, we're a couple again. We are living out our best life without children. But they do have a baby or a toddler, so... I don't know where that kid is, but ah, who sleep, knows? nap they, time, they, I don't know. But <laughs> Melatoninville is where he's at, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're right, because we see the mom on the phone drinking. We see the dad in the background just in his chair. I don't know what he's – I don't know if he's watching TV or if he's just vegging out, reading. I can't remember, but that's basically what they do. You know, the mom is on the phone and or cooking or drinking, and the dad is in his chair <laughs> – when he's not working. And that's about all they do. That's the extent of their parenting. Yeah. <laughs> and then Dustin says the line that I completely agree with. He says to his dad, seriously, you're really no help at all. You know that? And I'm like, yep, that's exactly right, Dustin. I could have told you that like six episodes ago. He's clearly yeah. you're not listening to me because I don't exist in your world. But I'm just spectating at this point. Exactly. Oh, man. Well, then Steve shows up with flowers. I'm I'm like, I like Steve. Steve shows up with these flowers, but there's this great kind of monologue. He's practicing saying he's sorry, but then he's saying like, what am I sorry for? Like, <laughs> right. Listen, I'm thinking, love you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. What the hell am I sorry for? He doesn't really want to apologize. Yeah. I love this girl, but, but I didn't do anything wrong. Right. <laughs> and so we've all felt that way, but hopefully the flowers will help with that. Dustin, he interrupts him. And he takes his flowers and goes to Steve's car and says, we have bigger problems than your love life. And this <laughs> yeah. speaks to what you said last episode. He's just his own man. Dustin, just like, take control. Take control mm -hmm. of the situation. Don't panic. And let's roll. And uh, he recruits him and the nail bat that apparently he still has. I'm thinking if Steve has the nail bat, he's got it mounted on his wall somewhere <laughs> as like a yeah. trophy with the blood stains on it. <laughs> So I guess we're to uh, insinuate that they're going to kill Dart at this point with that with that nail bat. Yeah, or at least be ready for whatever they see when they when they go down into that storm shelter. True. True. Yeah, it's it is fascinating to me that Dustin, who's probably three four years younger than Steve, is totally in control and in charge of the situation. Steve's just like, all right, all right, okay, where are we going? You know, he's just such an interesting character. Yeah. So there's a quick cut to the tunnels. Hopper is in the makeshift tunnel that he's created, that he's punched out. And right. I'm still confused at this point as what he's trying to do. I think just try to find a way out, as we said. I think so, too. But he gives up, yeah. basically. He just kind of... He does. He's exhausted. He's probably mm -hmm. got... This probably isn't good air in there. He doesn't have any water. So at this point, I think he's pretty much... I don't know if he's 
lost his will to live, but he just is unable to continue. He's I think he's mentally and physically exhausted at this point. Exactly. He's just trying to yeah. just going, okay, well, I guess my last resort is to hopefully have somebody rescue me. And this is when he gets wrapped up by the by the tentacle vines. And I thought this is a funny moment, but not like I was talking to Mike's dad funny. But he says As if the vines are going to stop and say, right. oh, wait, do you need something? And I know that's what I would do. The reaction is like, wait, 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 no, 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 no. That's the reaction. But I just, I find it funny to hear, hear that being said, like these vines are going to be going, guys, we need to hold off because uh, he's not ready. this guy, he's not, he's not ready to be suffocated yet. <laughs> <laughs> and then we get this like, yeah, we get the shot uh, above ground by his truck. We just hear him screaming, and we don't know. Is he dead? Is he is he dying? Is it's uh, it doesn't look good. Well, we know that the vines are impatient. That's what we know for sure right. because they don't. They're stop. not going to wait. <laughs> this is another interesting interesting transition because as the camera's panning back, then we get the voiceover of Lucas finishing up his conversation with Max or his monologue. Max thinks this is a story, like this fantasy story, and I would too, honestly. Because the thing I know about this group of four is that they play D&D and that they have a code and stuff. And so this whole story that he's telling sounds like something out of a D&D campaign to her, as little as she would know. And so she doesn't believe him. She's almost just like, yeah, I, I get it. And I love that she goes, there's some holes, you know, but for the most part, it was good. <laughs> there was some derivative stuff. Like, it's like she's some kind of critic, like she knows. Right. But, you know, this escalates rather quickly. She runs out. And she starts kind of yelling about the this Hawkins lab and these secret places and the Russians and this girl named Eleven. And he goes, shut up. And the look he gives her and the look she gives him, she's like, you're serious? I'm like, yes, I'm serious. It just, it got, it got real pretty quickly. I really liked right before that scene, I liked when she says, You did a good job, okay? You can go tell the others I believed your lies. It gets you experience points or whatever. And that, I thought that was humorous because that's a and d thing. Like you earn yeah. experience points to, to level up your character. So she clearly knows enough about D&D, even if she doesn't play it, that if this is a made up story that they're creating, she knows how to speak his language, you know, and, and communicate on whatever level she thinks he's, on, he's at. And yeah. uh, I just I think she, the actress who plays Max, does a, a great job in this role. I think her name is Sadie Sink. And one other thing is that if you look in the background during this whole argument, you can see Keith lurking behind the <laughs> counter and, and he still has Cheetos. So I don't know how many bags he goes through a day at that arcade, but he's he must have a, a stash. If it's more than one, it's too many. And that's too, yeah. much, that's too much Cheeto dust, man. You're going to have it permanently imprinted on your fingers, man. Yeah. You just... <laughs> I can't wait to see his date with Nancy take off. That's going to be really great. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's ever going to happen. I'll just say right now, I, I have a hunch that Nancy will never agree to go out with this guy, but I could be wrong. That'll be a spinoff series. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the romantic relationship of Keith and Nancy, the cheetah story. <laughs> so the scene ends, she's actually almost convinced. And then Billy shows up. Right. Half asleep in the car. <laughs> or high something. Yeah. I, I don't know if he's he's just... He is a mystery to me, man. I mean, he legitimately is a mystery. I don't know what's going on with him, and I'm excited about what we're going to find out with him. But he has this really interesting line before the scene ends. He says, you know what happens when you lie. 
oh my gosh, does she get beaten? Is this part of their relationship? That's kind of crazy. Um, yeah. I guess we'll find out. Maybe we will. Maybe we won't. I don't know. Clearly some weird, weird history with those two. I don't know. Yeah. An unhealthy half-sibling or step-sibling or non-sibling yeah. relationship. <laughs> so then the episode pushes us back over to Murray's. Nancy and Jonathan are sharing the completely clear tape recording to Murray of all the dialogue that the doctor was was giving them. And then Murray takes a drink and turns on some music to help him think, which I think is kind of hilarious. And then he says, it's not him that needs to believe them. It's them, capital T, the world at large. This whole bit absolutely fascinates me. This idea that if you are going to create something that's going to be controlling of people, the seed of a conspiracy theory, you don't make it so absurd that nobody can believe it. You actually, as he says, you make it digestible. You make it a digestible conspiracy theory, and then it actually points to the real thing. I think this has existed in the last few years or between 2020 and 2022 with the whole COVID and are vaccines real? Is it the government trying to control us? And some of this stuff you're listening to and you're like, this is stupid. Why are people believing this? But then you find out in some circles that, hey, maybe it's not such a crazy thing to think about. Now, I don't want to get into like the conspiracy theories and what's been known as fact and what's not. But the fact is, in every conspiracy theory, there is an element of truth. There's something about this thing that allows people to explain the world around them concerning something that is unexplainable. But this idea of being able to control the populace by creating something that they can say, yeah, that's real, but really kind of hiding the truth about it is just so incredible. And I think this is probably one of the more amazing parts of this show for me so far. It's like, wow, this is legitimate. Like this could really, and probably does really happen. Do we have a nefarious government in the U.S.? No, I don't think we do, but I think there are people that have ulterior motives and they use the government's policies and procedures to create that. So is there this cabal or there's this elite group of people that are looking to sex traffic kids all over the world? I don't believe that, but I absolutely believe that there are sex traffickers. And so when you have this like, I don't believe that, what that does for me is that makes me, as a trigger, say, yeah, sex trafficking doesn't exist. And it really does kind of take away the danger and the awareness that I should have about the fact that there are kids that do get trafficked. In the U.S., this happens. But when you attach it to an elite group of people who are using code words like pizza and things like that, it makes it unbelievable. This is almost the reverse of that, where you then find something that's unbelievable and you water it down, as he says, to make it point to something that then puts the people that are actually doing the bad thing in a serious light. Man, what an incredible like sequence of dialogue that got me to like, I'm thinking about this. Like this could be yeah, a whole episode yeah, yeah. just on this one scene. I don't want to do that obviously because we've got to get through the rest of it. But right. man, I was completely like wowed by this scene. Yeah. And I like how he says that them, the people, you know, that could be your priest, your mailman, your teacher, that they like this curtain that's in front of their lives, that it provides them with stability and comfort and definition. But this would open that curtain and open the curtain behind that curtain. Yeah, and I think, yeah. you know, if, if you use like an analogy of the UFO conspiracy over the last 70 years, you know, there's been 
so much evidence that these things are being seen. How much of it do we as a government or a government behind the curtain, you know, like, is there a secret organization that has been tasked with monitoring and perhaps even communicating with whatever it is that's in the skies, but they don't tell anything to the government officials that we elect. So there's plausible deniability. That's what I think it's getting at. It's the curtain behind the curtain. And Mm -hmm. that's where I think that there are sort of such compartmentalized factions of the sort of military industrial complex that do know things, that have information. This show, they're using the Department of Energy as the as sort of the culprit that knows something, but they're not sharing that whoever's running the Department of Energy in this show is certainly not telling the president. Ronald Reagan doesn't know anything about what's going on because he can't know. He has to deal with the everyday stuff that he was elected to take care of. All this right. is like so deep below what the elected president or members of Congress will ever have any information or ability to learn about. And so I think what Murray's character does is he's very smart in that he understands the sort of the psychology of the the populace, that Mm -hmm. they can't just accept these big monumental changes in how we perceive reality. Oh, there's other dimensions? Oh, what? That's like that shatters you know the fabric of of existence as we know it and so their everyday lives would be affected the stock markets would plummet you know everything would change and so the sort of power structure that's in place doesn't want that to happen they can only sort of give people a little bit at a time what they call disclosure you know it's like a little disclosure at a time to kind of acclimate and some people for example with ufos they say that all the movies from the 50s on have been slowly a form of acclimation of kind of getting us ready for the inevitable moment when the government says oh yeah yeah we we have neighbors that have been visiting us you know for 75 Mm -hmm. years and and they're friendly so don't worry (laughs) you know but they can't just spring that on people it has to exactly. You have to, it has to be gradual and in a way that's digestible. And I, yeah. that's I agree. This is a great scene because it really illustrates how just like um, Mad Max was unable to believe the story without proof. It's the same thing. No one else is going to believe this. No reputable reporter news station would report on this unless you had proof. And even if you had proof, have, as using the UFO analogy, there's been lots of photographic evidence people are like oh it's fake it's not real you know so then you're just like well well what's even real mm-hmm. what is true what is fake it's hard to draw a line anymore because right people don't even believe things that they see with their own eyes necessarily so it's yeah, yeah it's a really fascinating scene that just makes you think Absolutely. And I think what it does is it's very appropriate and well-placed that it comes after the scene at the arcade where you have someone telling straight up truth to someone who doesn't believe it because it's so outlandish to another scene where that could be done, but you have the person who understands the world and how it digests things and how it needs to have something scary but familiar, what I would call kind of the matrix effect of like, look, we need to be able to connect the dots. If you told us that there is this thing called the upside down that houses a thing called the Demogorgon, I'm thinking, what D&D game were you playing these last 24 hours to (laughs) really come up with this? But if you gave me like a Chernobyl or a Three Mile Island and you said it's like that, only a little bit worse, I think as Nancy kind of compares Barb getting an illness of some kind Right. That makes sense. 
an experiment gone wrong, something, you know, yes. something as, as simple as that, you know, that people, are, oh, okay, I get it. Yeah. Government's doing experiments and there was a leak, you know, something, and it, it caused someone to die. Okay. You know, that's, yeah, that's believable and digestible. Right. <laughs> One other thing that I found interesting in the scene is that as, you know, he's having some vodka and he, it's too strong. And he, he, that's the analogy. He waters it down. Right. And I think he gives, Nancy and Jonathan a glass of vodka in the scene. No, he gives them club soda. So he waters it down with club soda, and then he puts club soda into their glass. Got it. Okay. I I was trying to decide if it what if he was like you doing that to celebrate with them because I, the one interesting thing this is 1984, and a lot of people that were born after 1984 would not know, but up until July 17th of 1984, you could drink at 18. That's when the Congress passed the National Minimum Age Drinking Act, I think it was called, and it forced all the states to prevent anyone under the age of 21 from purchasing or drinking alcohol. So this would have been at the point where it changed. So like if Nancy had just turned 18, she was probably really pissed. She's like, I can't drink now because it just changed the law. <laughs> it's like I have to wait three more years. Yeah. I, I would think as, as crazy as Murray could be. Uh, or at this point, as smart as he could be, he would not allow them to drink. Yeah, yeah. But again, like six months earlier, they would have legally been allowed to have a drink with him, which is just oh, fascinating yeah. to me because the law had just changed, you know, in July of 1984. And I think it's November now. So not even six yeah. months. Well, then uh, we move over to Hawkins' lab real quick. The doctor's looking at soil samples and we really find out that they react to heat. The interesting thing here is that the Bunsen burner the one that's actually giving off the heat to the soil sample affects the other one. So that's kind of a little clue that, okay, the soil that's been infected or this creature that's infecting the soil and that lives underground and that apparently is affecting will is connected all over. So it's like this sort of um, interconnected thing, even though it's not physically connected. I thought that was kind of a cool special effect. By yeah. The way. I thought like that a was hive really mind type approach, <laughs> you know, kind of like yeah. uh, the Borg and Star Trek. Yeah, that's a good analogy there. I thought that the way they showed that was really kind of cool with the yeah. the funnel, like the, t- like right, the tornado right. kind of thing. That was cool. And then we're back at uh, Becky's house, and this is probably the most emotionally draining scene. This is one that kind of hurt my heart walking through this. We really get a lot of information here because Eleven connects uh, with uh, with Mama, and we find out a lot, including the, the meaning of the letters and numbers. And so we go through this whole <laughs> sequence where she was in labor and bleeding – and that's where we get the word breathe. She's taken to the hospital and has the baby delivered. And there's our Dr. Brenner sighting. <laughs> upside down, Dr. Brenner. Upside down, Dr. Brenner. I mean, like, literally upside down, not like yeah, in not, the upside down. Yeah. Not, he doesn't have, like, things coming out of his mouth or right. anything not like that, right? <laughs> and then we're back in the recovery room with Becky, and she sees a sunflower. So we see that. Several years later, we see that they've taken her baby. She believes they've taken her baby. And this is why I think harkens back to that think, comment you made with Becky in 11. Becky says, you know, she wasn't breathing. He's like, no, 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 I saw her. So Becky's trying to convince her that she died and she doesn't believe her. So several years later, the trance uh, thing, the dream kicks forward several years later in her house and she gets a gun from a safe. And that's where we get three to the right, four to the left. And then we're in Hawkins lab. She shoots a security guard. No issues there, apparently. And then she takes off inside the lab and finds another one of the kids, and I think this is eight from the first episode. I'm guess I'm assuming it is. 
And then that's when she sees the room that they're in and it has a rainbow icon next to it. So there's rainbow. And then finally, and this really hurt me, she gets captured and taken to a sedation room where she is shocked unconscious at 450 volts. Oh my gosh, Adam, this was just absolutely horrific. But what really cinched it for me was the fact that we're led to believe that in her trance, in her kind of unconsciousness, she's repeating those same memories over and over again. And her saying the words is her expulsion of that, like, okay, it's this, it's this, and just having to live that over and over again. Man, what a punishment. That was awful. Oh, it's just torture. And I guess she's, even though she's staring at game shows on the TV, I think we're led to believe that she's not actually seeing them, that she's, what she's really seeing is these memories she's reliving over and over again. So yeah, she's just caught in this eternal torture, really repeating over and over again, these horrible events that she had to endure. It's worse than death, I would say. I think so. Yeah. I think this idea of just being in a perpetual like loop of all those memories, none of which were, were really pleasant. I mean, if you look at look oh. back at all those things, none of them were, were pleasant. Her pregnancy and bleeding and having to be taken to the hospital and having to be cut open. I mean, none of that. And I think we're shown Dr. Brenner giving her a cesarean section. I think yes. that's what happened. So he, mm-hmm. in fact, delivered Eleven or, or Jane. Again, we're still not sure. Is he the father or is he just a father figure? They, they haven't really confirmed either way, but... Mm-hmm. He clearly has been a part of Eleven's life since birth, and that's, that is interesting. And let me just throw this out here. Yeah. Papa, Mama, we've got the Russians. I'm kind of feeling like there's a Russian influence there because I think— Interesting. I know people who have Russian connections, and they call Papa the, the Russian, like a Russian common way of calling someone dad. But anyway, just, just throwing that out there. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good theory. Things could go— in any number of directions. Uh, <laughs> I, I will say that my daughter calls my dad, her, her grandfather, Papa. That's just what we decided. She calls him Grandpa, too, but she calls him Papa. So, But as a grandfather, not as a father. She doesn't call me Papa. She calls me Dad you know, or Daddy. So I, don't, I think there's a lot of different words that work <laughs> for different, <laughs> uh, yeah. different cultures, different parts of the United States. Yeah, so we'll see. Yeah, so just just putting that little nugget out there. Since you can throw yeah. nuggets, I'm going to throw some too. Yeah, definitely. No, I like hearing your theories at this stage because it'll be fun to go back, you know, and see which ones were were spot on and which ones were completely out in left field. Which might be what they're trying to get you to think. They might yeah. intentionally be misdirecting you as the viewer right. to make it more shocking. That's my digestible conspiracy theory, right <laughs> exactly. there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, the last scene is uh, in the car. Joyce is driving, or maybe Bob's driving. It's maybe it's well, is it the Bob mobile? I don't know. I think it is. But anyway, they're driving to said location that they have discovered, and Will leads them with his now memories to where Hopper is. Tells him to take a sharp turn, and Mike, I love just they goes super spy, like just giving yeah. him affirmation. Like good job, man. That's awesome. Bob has a great line here. When they get to the place where Hopper is, they get to the hole. Joyce is like, lower me down. He goes, just going down the hole. And at that point, I was like, Bob's now part of the crazy. Like, he's officially in because he's going down there with her. He is so fascinated 
by the fact that they're inside Will's map. Like as she's looking around, they're they're both in two different worlds. Like she's like, yeah, she's in horror. He's fascinated, yeah. like intellectually yeah. stimulated. Joyce, what is going on? Where are we? Tunnels. Is this Will's map? Hopper! Are we in Will's map? And, yeah. and in that way, he's a lot like Dustin. I feel like he's a grown-up version yes. of Dustin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I agree. That's a that's a great comparison. At one point, Adam, and I told you this, I'll just say this to our listeners, that I wanted him to look at Joyce and say, this is our time. This is our time down here. As inappropriate <laughs> right. as that would be, I thought that would make no sense, but I would laugh out loud and be like, ace, great line, and let's move on. He doesn't, and I'm okay he with doesn't. that. He doesn't. But that, that, would be, that would be funny. But he does say Chester Copperpot a couple times. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think the vine set booty traps? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, they discover Hopper's cigarettes. Meanwhile, Topside, the famous Hawkins Heat and Air Van show up like the heroes that they're not. And uh, <laughs> right. to the rescue. To the rescue. Not really. They're just there to burn things to the ground <laughs> like Nancy wants to burn it to the ground but i guess in, in a way in this one particular scene they do kind of come to the rescue and help them escape these tunnels with their flamethrowers so in a way they do help but i mean they have alternate reasons for that let's yeah, they, just let's just be yeah honest. and they have a history of nefarious deeds so yeah they can't muck this up they can't afford yeah. to muck this one up and so joyce and bob discover hopper covered by the creature and they free him he directs them to his knife and they're cutting him up. Here's the third Back to the Future reference. And I don't think it was by design. I just thought Back to the Future. The way he says the word bastard is similar to the way that Marty does when Doc gets shot. He kind of yells yeah. it a little bit, but kind of muffled. And I was like, okay, is that a Back to the Future reference? Probably not, but whatever. It's, it, it is to us. That's all it that is matters. to us. And that's really, yeah, that's right. All that matters. Because and we then that like little Back to the Future. <laughs> if you can't tell already <laughs> Feeling Films got three episodes dedicated to it so if you yeah. want to hear our thoughts on that in full detail check those out but the uh, the scene that moment ends with just a great kind of exchange between Bob and Jim hey Bob hey Jim and we're there. It's a little maybe mutual respect that's forming. You know, they may I have had so. a history of, you know, being in two different cliques, you know, in high school. And, but maybe now they're starting to bond a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's that's probably a good observation there. And the last shot, Adam, is so epic and tragic yeah. at the same time. Will is yelling as the creature is getting burned. Uh, another upside down shot as the camera just sort of rotates. And again, I think that there's this great parallel happening because the scene before we see Mama getting shocked over and over again. And I almost felt the same thing happening here. Not that he was getting shocked, but that he was being continuously punished and he's just left mm -hmm. in this like shaking state. And it's just like, oh my gosh, what do you do with that? And then, of course, we hit the credits and that's the end of the episode. And then it just left me with some chills. I was like, man, yeah, wow, <laughs> where are we going next? I don't know, but where we're going, we don't need roads. I mean, it's just like, boom. Uh, we apparently need tunnels at this point. So, yeah, solid episode from, from yeah. my perspective and definitely one that I uh, I need to take a, a breath after watching. Yeah, I mean, clearly the ending further implies or reinforces the notion that everything's connected, that whatever's 
possessed will, whatever's in those tunnels, whatever's in the lab, in the beakers, <laughs> whatever perhaps is in the upside down. I don't know. But whatever this is, whatever, however it's connected, that if it's in pain, it's all in pain. Perhaps it can communicate through just as Will is able to see where Hopper is because he's connected to those underground tunnels. So yeah, it, it's a good way of realizing that Will is indeed sort of a part of, of whatever this is that's happening to Hawkins. And he's, he's in it. But as we've learned, that makes him kind of a super spy. He's, that might be their secret weapon, if you will, that he has the inside connection to learn what it wants, what it's there for, what its plan is. So hopefully they can break him out of that sort of, I don't know what you would call it. Like a living dream state of some kind. Yeah. Yeah. Just sort of like a living possession of some kind. Yeah. That's that's my biggest question leaving here, Adam, is just how are they going to get Will out of that? Right. I legit don't remember what happens with Will next, and uh, I'm excited to, to jump right in. Well, tell us what we're going to be jumping right into. The next episode is Chapter 6, and it's uh, entitled The Spy. It's, uh, again, directed by Andrew Stanton, so it seems like they got, uh, when they do get a director other than the Duffers, they seem to like to do back-to-back episodes which would make sense in a show like this because they tend to direct a lot of scenes together for mm-hmm. budgetary reasons. Yeah. So you bring a director in, they could probably shoot two episodes back to back and uh, save some money that way. Yeah. So hopefully we'll see more action, more of that same kind yeah. of style and heavy exactly. mythology being pushed forward. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Well, that's going to do it for us in this episode of AOS. Longer episode than we're normally used to, but obviously totally worth it. So we're hoping you stuck around with us and uh, enjoyed the conversation like we did until we uh, meet again or talk again i'm patch he's adam and we are out of here